0: Hi, I'm Ian, co-founder at Dig Insights and president of Dig's innovation insights platform, Upside. Welcome to Dig In. Dig In is the place to stay up to date on what's happening in the world of innovation, research, and technology, to find inspiration from today's business and innovation leaders, and to properly dig into hot topics that matter for consumer brands right now. And when applicable, we'll bring our own research to that conversation. Welcome back to the Dig In podcast. Today, we're talking to Adam Coffee. Adam Coffey is a board member, best-selling author, Forbes Business Council member, and an acclaimed guest speaker. He was named one of the most influential leaders by the Orange County Business Journal in 2018, 19, 2020, and 2021, and was named to the prestigious OC Top 50. He has spent the last 20 years as CEO of three private equity-backed national services companies. Through his experience experience executing a buy-and-build strategy, he has bought and sold more than 100 companies, ranging inside from a million dollars to a billion dollars. Adam's first book, The Private Equity Playbook, was released in February 2019 and became an instant number one Amazon bestseller. His second book, The Exit Strategy Playbook, was released in September of 2021 and was also named a number one Amazon bestseller. Thanks so much for joining us today, Adam.
1: Hey, Ian, glad to be here and hello to all your listeners.
0: So, you know, for those of us, those people in, in my industry and those people who listen to this podcast, um, they would wonder, potentially wonder, why am I talking to a private equity expert and CEO? And, uh, and, and one of the big reasons is that our industry has been so transformed by private equity and venture capital over the last few years, probably most famously. The Qualtrics deal that everyone still talks about, where they, you know, first they got four hundred million dollars in funding, then they were bought by SAP for eight billion dollars, and subsequently went public. But what, what they may not know about is some of the other uh, big deals that have been going on. So, Attest, uh, they've raised a total of eighty-five million. Uh, actually, sixty million of that was actually announced today. Uh, Suzy, one hundred and four million dollars in total funding. Momentive, formerly known as SurveyMonkey, $1.1 billion, and Quantalope uh, has raised $40 million. And so this has been really transformative to our entire industry, and it's impacting everybody. And it's making it, you know, it's making it very difficult for uh, older, uh, more traditional companies to keep up on the tech side. It's definitely difficult for companies who are bootstrapped. Uh, to keep up with the level of spend and investment and also it's created a ton of merger and acquisition um, activity and because of that I thought you were the perfect person to talk to not just about what was going on in my industry but also just about private equity in general and what I wanted to do was start with a few common misconceptions about private equity and get your thoughts about some of these things so I'm going to start with number one, this this misconception that private equity is a win-lose where investors win and entrepreneurs and their employees lose.
1: So Adam, uh, what's been your experience with this? Well, before I get to that, Ian, let me just tell you that yours is not the only industry that's been transformed by private equity. Virtually every industry on the planet has been transformed by private equity. We're, we're talking about in that 20 years. While I was a CEO running uh, companies for private equity, uh, building national service businesses, uh, you know the investments in private equity have gone from hundreds of billions to now more than 4.5 trillion. Over seven trillion, if you include debt funds, and you know in totality, right now, today, at this very second, there's 1.5 trillion in committed cash. Out looking for companies to buy. And so because of that influx, massive influx of capital, um, you know, private equity has had to make all kinds of pivots to get into blue ocean and new industries that historically they had not played in. So literally, you're, you're finding private equity in every industry on the planet. And in 2022, uh, it's estimated that more than 50% of all merger and acquisition activity on the planet is going to include private equity on one side of the table or both so really uh, exploding everywhere so so some of your misconceptions uh, I, I think a lot of business people today if they took a basic quiz on private equity would fail it miserably uh, and, and you know unfortunately our thinking is colored by what we hear in the news you know it's often you know so often you know, and a lot of people think of, you know, this famous billionaire who, uh, who made his fortunes in private equity and then, you know, ran for president. And, uh, <laughs> a, and you know, it just seems that whenever you hear news in general and it relates to private equity, uh, it typically has a, a negative connotation. And so, you know, PE, you know, is it a win-lose where investors win and entrepreneurs and their employees lose? You know, a- absolutely not. I, th- I think one of the reasons why I wrote the private equity playbook uh, a few years ago Was really to provide that base level of education and understanding. You know, there's over six thousand private equity firms on the planet today, and like any industry, when you have six thousand players, you'll find good, you'll find great, you'll find bad, and you'll find god awful. You know, there's a mixture of all of that that's out there, And, and so I would tell you that my historical experience with private equity has not been. That it's a win, you know, win lose where investors are the only winners and entrepreneurs and employees lose. Matter of fact, it's been quite opposite. You know, I've been able to build three national uh, service businesses. We've added thousands of jobs, uh, and you know, just in total economic activity. You know, when other companies were being hammered by recessions, you know, I was typically hiring. Uh, growth rates have been uh, historical highs. Uh, and exponentially higher than call it the private sector. So I, I would tell you, I'm, I'm a believer that you can actually all win, that I as a CEO can partner with a sophisticated investor like private equity, ride their coattails, uh, and, and for a management team, uh, that means you know, participating in those changes and control the transactions, generating generational wealth. Uh, and at the same time, I can be a very good steward to employees I was always known for having very strong employee centered cultures um, where we tried very hard to make a difference in employee lives. You know, I can just think back to my last company, uh, CoolSys, and I, I, I go back to the beginning of the pandemic, and my private equity sponsor at the time put forth their own capital and helped us create a foundation whose sole purpose in life was to benefit the employees of the company who were impacted by COVID. So for people who, who caught COVID or had a death of a loved one, you know, unfortunately, you know, or were somehow impacted, we actually started, started a charitable foundation so that we could give money to the employees uh, in addition to the normal, you know, substance that we were providing to, to employees. So, you know, again, I, I would tell you that, yeah, there's good, there's bad, there's ugly in any industry. Um, but if you pick a good partner, certainly the, the PE groups that I've partnered with over the years really really cared about employees, wanted to be good stewards to, to the employees, to their limited partners, their investors, uh, and you could find that balance, which uh, unfortunately is is not the typical stereotype that you hear about when you think about private equity.
0: That's great. I mean, you talk... You- For sure. You talked about the good, bad, and the ugly. You've, you know, you've, you've been the CEO of of three uh, PE backed companies, but over your career, you've bought and sold over a hundred companies where private equity has been on the other side of the table too. So I'm assuming you've seen everything. You've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly.
1: Uh, I think, I like to think I've seen quite a bit in 20 years. You, You know, I, uh, in, in all of those companies, uh, I ran them long enough to have multiple shareholder groups. Uh, and, and so, you know, Wash Multifamily Laundry was a good example. I started with the family, you know, so the founding family, or, or excuse me, founding family was the owners of the firm, they hired me to be the first person from outside the family to run the business. Uh, I helped them transition to private equity and then did a couple of flips with different uh, private equity groups in that one. So, through the course of building these three companies, uh, my primary strategy, in addition to pumping up organic growth, was to also use a strategy known as buy and build. And so I would serve as the platform company backed by a private equity firm. I was a strategic buyer because I was a company buying other companies. And you know, I would do uh, upwards of 30 acquisitions you know, while I was running a, a platform company. So I think, I think my count was 34 at Wash. Um, and I was up to uh, 21 at CoolSys by, by the time I left. So, you know, there, there's 50 right there, just in, in those two. And, and so we would be buying other companies, and then adding them, call it to the, to the empire, you know, in, integrating them, making them part of the, the, the strategic empire that we were building. And, uh, and so as a result of that, yeah, I, I talk to entrepreneurs all, all the time and I evaluate businesses all the time. And, and if you've bought and sold 100, you've probably looked at 1,000 just based on the way that, that the typical metrics work. And then every time I was in the market selling a company, you know, I, I would deal with, you know, call it a dozen to 30 private equity firms and, uh, and present, present the company as an opportunity, engage with investors. I've also done consulting. Uh, I'm an investor in private equity funds. Uh, I'm an advisor to others, and so i you know over a twenty year period i've been exposed to literally hundreds of different private equity firms and uh and i've and I've seen those that i I think are the best you know and would love to partner with and enjoy partnering with and then I've seen some that were that were a challenge and 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 difficult but you know all in all you know they they uh they are an industry and so all all extremes are are present so just a little bit of exposition there because you talked about being a platform company and I think
0: what's interesting is that is a that's a fairly unique strategy to private equity so private equity will create will buy a company make it the platform and they'll that company will then become a a strategic acquirer of other companies even if it's private equity backed correct and those things will be bolted on or tucked into your company and that's that's one of the ways of growing that company um what you know the can you just talk really quickly for those people who may not be, you know, may not have read both your books, although I highly recommend that they do, uh, the difference between a strategic acquirer and a financial acquirer?
1: Sure. And, and you know, let's, let's back up a second because you touched on another important topic, which is... You know what's the difference between private, you know, private equity and venture capital, and and what I'll tell you is, uh, you know, common misconception: venture capital is a form of private equity. So private equity is literally just a term that means you have private investors and that they are investing and aggregating money into funds. Um, it, you know, they're limited partners. The private equity firms are the general partners. They manage you know, they manage pools of capital. the The segment that I work in. Uh, is generally called buyout funds. So private equity buyout funds, you know their charter, what they do is they seek out mature companies. So this isn't venture capital startups. this is established companies with a track record of revenue and earnings growth. Um, you know typically when when I had gotten involved in companies, uh, in all three cases, those companies had at least a 40 year history of being in existence and had gone through, Different gyrations of ownership, you know, during the, the, those histories. But private equity comes in many flavors. There are buyout funds, which buy mature, established companies. That's where I play, is kind of in the private equity buyout fund world. And then you have venture capital. Venture capital also a form of private equity. And those are, you know, made famous, you know, by the TV shows that that, that you see. And and uh, you know, it, it's while it's the sexiest, it's not the largest, uh, form of private equity investment. And then thirdly, um, there's, there's, uh, uh, debt funds. So people who put in pools of capital that then become kind of the mezzanine debt holders, you know, and, or, uh, potentially also part of the senior structure. Uh, and that's a huge portion of private equity as well. So I, I think you'll find that, uh, you know, buyout funds are a huge portion. Debt funds are a huge portion. Venture capital, uh, capital is a fairly small piece and growing. So when I, when I think about just kind of private equity in general, that's how it's, it's, uh, it's different flavors of ice cream are, if you will. And there's nuances to all of that. So uh, it's not just vanilla and chocolate. You know, there is uh, Baskin Robbins, 31 different flavors. But, you know, in, in speaking in terms of broad brushstrokes, that's kind of kind of what the big buckets of private, private equity is. Now you talked about financial buyers versus strategic. So first thing to remember is forget who owns either. Um, it doesn't matter how a company is capitalized or who the owner is, it may be the public markets, it may be private markets, it may be a PE firm, maybe a family, but simply when it's one company buying another company, then that is a strategic deal where a a company is a strategic acquirer, but, you know, company buying a company. And uh, and, and so when that happens, the uh, target that's being uh, acquired joins and becomes a part of the larger strategic. And and again, it it may have private funding or or private equity behind it. Um, On the financial side, you know, when, when you talk about a financial transaction or a financial buyer, that's typically when a private equity fund, is buying a company direct without having a platform in the middle, and they're buying it direct to become a platform or a, an anchor holding of the, the firm's fund. You know, so uh, you know it's a nuance, um, but it's an important one. And w- what you'll always find with private equity is there are a bunch of little nuance differences uh, between how all of this works and is structured. And so, so again. My basic premise was write books that would be essentially 21 years worth of CEO cliff notes to help the common entrepreneur, the common um, Fortune 500 business professional really get a base understanding of what private equity is, how it works, how it's structured, and how it functions, primarily because it's become 50% of all M&A activity on the planet, and it's such a black hole. And there's such a lack of understanding that that I, I felt it was needed to just provide some basic education.
0: Perfect, thank you. I think the statistic I read, and maybe it came from you, was that private equity. So the buyout funds
1: are about 50 times larger than the uh, the venture capital. So it's changing fast, and you have yeah. to you have to rely on on you know current statistics. But I, I would generally say that uh, buyout funds are by far the largest portion of private equity, and that venture capital was uh, a small you know nascent part of, of private equity ten years ago, and it's mm-hmm. growing growing fast, and and so it, it just seems everybody's jumping on the bandwagon. You know, another thing that's real popular right now are SPACs in the public market, which are, are, are the special purpose acquisition companies. And I'm seeing private equity firms you know, now create SPACs as well. So a lot of different flavors of ice cream, definitely seeing a, a large uptick in venture capital funds. And I don't have latest statistics in front of me, but I'm, I'm sure it's much larger than it has been you know, over the past 10 years. But uh, still, buyout funds kind of remain the king. And then debt debt funds being a, a totally separate category, but they're uh, uh, you know kind of approaching fifty percent of total private equity uh, under management right now. Perfect. So let's let's talk about another common misconception. Another common misconception.
0: I think there's a lot of fear, and you know you talk about the importance of being open in your book. You, you talk about the importance of you look if you're if you're looking for equity. You need to talk to your employees and let them know what you know that you're doing it because it's not necessarily it's not a bad thing and it's not shouldn't be a scary thing and they shouldn't necessarily be worried. You're trying to grow the company and if you know in the in the case of uh, if you become a platform company, it can be very exciting. I mean that's what you've been doing for for a long time. So uh, another common misconception is that the first job of private equity is to replace senior management. You know, there's this this story out there. Um, that you sell a company to private equity, the first thing you can come come is uh, come in and clean the house and, and fire all the senior management and bring in outside people.
1: So that, that you know, sir, again, it, it, it's one of the myths of, of private equity. It does happen, but it happens for a reason. You know, generally speaking, private equity does not bring management to the table. They're, they're financial investors who are backing an existing management team and in the case of a buyout fund, it's a mature company that's been around for a, a long time. And uh, and it has a track record of, uh, of producing revenue and growth and, and earnings. But it's something that people miss. And, and I really try to point that out in the private equity playbook. And, and that's the fact that you know a company that's growing at 10% a year, if you if you use the old financial law of 72 or rule of 72, You know, if you're growing at 10% a year or getting a 10% return, it takes seven years to double in size. Well, that kind of growth rate is not gonna get private equity where it needs to be. In order to get the private equity style returns that they have been producing for decades now, a company needs to be growing at a 30 plus percent compound annual growth rate. And it needs to hit those numbers year after year after year. If it does that, and it can do that, then a company will double in size in 2.87 years. I'm, I'm pulling that number out of the air if I'm remembering my calculator math right, and it'll 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 actually be five times larger in just under five years. Uh, and, and so those are the growth rates that are required. And I think what happens to a lot of founders or family-owned businesses that transition to private equity is that they were content growing at. You know, call it their 8 to 10% a year, and they really have no story or conscious idea in their head that's going to take them to a 30% growth rate. And so if they get out of the gate slow, if they're unable to bend the growth curve and, uh, and, and can't increase and ramp up significantly, and I got to tell you, in the three companies that, that I've run, I was able to do that. I was able to bend the curve, take something that's growing at less than 10%, and grow at 30%. And that's the level that's required. But if you can't get there, keep in mind, private equity funds exist for about 10 years. And the typical hold period is five years. So they've got five years to generate a three times multiple of invested capital or better. That's kind of their typical benchmark for for most firms. And in order to do that, if you can't bend the curve as a a founder or a, a family that's transitioned, you're going to get help and and help means if you're a financial guy, you know, and a financial backer means I'm going to bring in a new leadership team, you know, someone that can get the job done. And so what I think happens is people have, you know, they go into this with a misconception about what kind of actual growth rates and returns are required. And if they get out of the gate slow, they're going to get help. And that's why I wrote the books was so that people could understand you're getting ready to step out on the ice of a professional hockey game here and, and you've been playing peewee, and the rink didn't get any bigger, and the nets didn't get any bigger, but the speed at which those players can skate and cover the length of the ice is, uh, is dramatically increased. You know, A lot of college athletes talk about you know, how fast the pro game is in comparison, and that's what you're gonna find. You are dealing with the world's most sophisticated business investors. They're backing you, but if you can't get the job done, you're going down in the minor leagues, and someone else is coming in to run that business. So a slight detour here because, you know, you
0: talk about bending the growth curve, and I thought, you know, one of the the really one of the, one of my favorite parts of your your second book, the Exit Strategy Playbook, was you when you actually just broke it down into some really nice high level um, buckets for that. So you, which you called a growth levers. So organic growth, margin expansion buy and build, um, you know, working with consultants. And I think, you know, I've read a ton of strategy books, I think most people have. Um, these aren't necessarily new concepts, but I like the way that you just group them together. So, so, uh, uh, you know, simply in your book, and really laid it out really easily. And I think you know, you talked, you know, in your book, you talk about a lot of that growth that you've been able to bend the curve. It isn't just about buy and build. Uh, it's also been a lot of organic growth. And so that's the type of thing that you need to consider as well if you're, you know, if you're purchased or you take funding for private equity and uh, and also that they will potentially help you with.
1: Yeah, so, so one of the benefits of working with private equity is the, um, the relationships that they have with the lender universe, they can get you know access to capital for you, the business owner, that you cannot get on your own. You know, simply just not available to you as a small business owner, even if you're a large business, often it's not available at the same type of rates or with the same level of, uh, of financing. And so private equity can bring a lot of, uh, not, not just capital, but then relationships with world-class consulting firms who may not be experts in your business, but they can generically help you attack any kind of problem that you might face and, and use and bring best practices from a number of industries and a number of different companies that can really help you amplify growth. So when, when I think about bending the curve, keep in mind that buyout funds by established companies. And again, all three companies that I ran had been around for 40 years. So a company that's been around for 40 years Probably isn't growing at thirty percent a year when I get there. Let me tell you, because uh, it's it's you know if you go from one dollar earnings to two, that's a hundred percent growth. You may find that in the world of VC and startup, but you're not going to find that in in the world of buyout funds. So y- there is an organic growth component. Component in order, whenever the private equity firm is going to leave and sell that company back into the open market. Um, you know, you can't just be a buy and build, you can't just be doing mergers and acquisitions, you you have to have sustainable organic growth. And you have to have, uh, you know, margin improvement, you have to have all of these levers of growth present in order to get an outsized multiple on exit. So what I like to think about is, you know, I've been able to go into companies. And first of all, if you're growing organically at 30%, God bless you, uh, especially if you're in a buyout fund category and been around for a while because you're already home free uh, and now it's how can you take 30 and make it 50% but if you're at 8 10% generally what i can find is you know first of all there's organic growth so i can sell more of the same thing to new people or the same people or i can get additional price you know i can also improve the margin profile of, of whatever it is i'm already selling today you know all of those things yield organic growth. So generally speaking, I can get organic growth from low single digits up to high single digits. I'll add in a few points of margin improvement. And now I'm in the teens. And and that's a healthy growth rate. But again, I got to get to 30%. So I personally am looking for fragmented industries where there are a lot of players, a lot of small players, and a lot of opportunities to, uh, to go out and start acquiring companies. And it's the combination of organic growth you know, margin improvement, price increasing, all of those levers that deal with the organic side of the business, amped up with buy and build, which then gets me to a sustainable growth rate. Uh, and, and so when I personally am looking for a company and an industry to immerse in as a CEO, you know, uh, not only am, am I thinking about, you know, what job opportunities are private equity firms bringing to me, but I'm thinking about what are the what's the profile of the company? What's the profile of the industry? In order for me to be successful, I got to find myself into certain types of industries. Uh, And so I'm looking for highly fragmented industries. Um, You know, good example, CoolSys, the last company that I I was running, you know, there were 4,500 small mom and pop refrigeration service companies and, and commercial HVAC service companies out there. When there's that many, And I bought 21, you know, in a five-year run. You know, it's, boy, there's still 4,479 left for me to to, to buy. So, you know, it's like the buy and build is going to be a strategy that can be played out in that industry for decades. uh, And you won't run out. But I have been in other industries where there were only a few hundred players. And after about a 10-year run, you know, buy and build was kind of done in that industry because they're Pac-Man bought, you know, all the dots on the screen were eaten up and there wasn't any new screen coming. So, you know, it's, it, uh, you know, an entrepreneur, uh, a CEO, you know, has to be mindful of what the profiles are of the, of the companies they're building, the industries they're running. But generally speaking, there's a combination of organic growth, which includes price, volume, and margin. And then it's amplified with mergers and acquisitions and in, in, in a fragmented industry where that's going to go on for years Uh, Wall Street doesn't care how you're doing it. They're just looking at that growth rate and saying, wow, that's a sustainable growth rate. Therefore, as an investor, I reward a company like that with an outsized multiple because it's I'm buying future earnings at a discounted rate to today's earnings. And, you know, it's a it's a nice investment with a nice return.
0: That's interesting. I think that potentially talks a little bit to why, you know, as you mentioned, private equity, 50 percent of total M&A deals. Um, but incredibly transformative to all categories right now. Um, But it's really intensified and heated up in the market research and res tech categories, particularly over the last few years, you know, sort of even just right before COVID, but throughout COVID uh, throughout the pandemic, it's continued. And I think there's a couple of underlying drivers for that. One is, um, you know, we had a, a few big, very established players like the Ipsos and Cantars um, who bought up a lot of smaller consultancies more on the service side. And then the ResTech side, a lot of it was, of its funding was coming from venture capital actually, but also from buyout funds. You know, that proliferated into from, you know, a few, a handful of small tech players to the last time I checked on my friend, Mike Stevens uh, website that tracks this over 900 uh, Res tech platforms out there, so I think we've sort of been in this proliferation and fragmentation fragmentation stage. A lot of the growth of the new up and coming companies has been driven by private equity. I'd actually say the majority of it has probably more than fifty percent in our industry. And now, um, at this point, it's beginning to consolidate. Like we're beginning to see the actual acquisition, strategic acquisition, heat up now as well because those private equity backed platform players are looking for buy and build strategies. So I think you know, that might talk a little bit to what's going on in our category.
1: And what you'll find too is then is as an industry consolidates, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the companies that are within it still seeking that 30% growth rate are gonna start making strategic pivots. Okay, If I deal with data in a certain industry What's kind of an adjacency where my expertise is still valid, but it's new blue ocean for me, you know, for the company that I'm running. And so maybe now it's sports data. I'm just using some, you know, wild analogy, but you know, certainly it's, there are strategic pivots to any company in any industry. And as you get saturation in a given market or industry, you start looking for some strategic pivots, you know, part of that proliferation of growth also Comes from the fact that since Sarbanes Oxley, you know, since the 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 great financial you know meltdown of oh eight oh nine, you know, you, you it's it's hard to go public. It's hard to be public. Now you throw in all of the activist shareholders on a public company. I mean, any company. I don't care who you are. If you're public, you've got activist shareholders who are are, are creating disruption. You know, in your world, it's just it's hard to go public, it's expensive to be public, and you have to deal with a lot of headaches. And so private is, uh, is a very attractive place to be. And as long as private equity is able to generate outsized returns for shareholders, you know, for their limited partners, which they have private equity will continue to grow and money will continue to come into it and and it has and you know just when I when I wrote the first book you know it came out in 19 so I wrote it in 18 at that time you had around 3.5 trillion 3.4 trillion in uh, assets under management and private equity today you're over 4.5 trillion And it just the number keeps on on growing. So money is flooding the asset class known as private equity or alternative investing. And that's also why you're seeing now huge increases in VC funds because, hey, I'm getting all this money, I got to put it to work somewhere. There's a limit to how much money can go into a buyout fund. You know, just simply when you think about, okay, you're seeing it for the first time in your industry over the last four or five years. But there are other industries where private equity has been for 20 or 30 years. And so it's constantly doing pivots, looking for new industries, new opportunities, and you know as that continues to proliferate with the money coming in, looking for outsized returns that are beating the stock market. Um, it, it's becoming, you know, it, it's a it's getting to be a very complicated space. Prices are going up, values, you know, and valuations being paid for companies are at record highs today, which is uh, which is a great thing if you're a, a business owner or a founder you know, and you're potentially thinking about exiting, you know, multiples are very high right now. A lot of competition.
0: Yeah. And you, you touched on this a little bit, but you know, going, going to hit another misconception here. You touched on this a little bit. Um, there's also this, this misconception that private equity doesn't add value beyond the money. And, and you talked a little bit about, you know, that they've got some connections and they definitely know some consultants. Um but can can you talk to some other, you know, either either case studies or examples where, you know, as you wrote in your book, these are very sophisticated investors. Generally, these are not, you know, you know, these are not average small business people. These are these people are bringing a, definitely a different level of sophistication to the way that they're looking at your business and the industry. Um, so, can you? I know obviously they can bring in somebody like you who's an expert in, in buy and build strategies and, and a lot of other strategies, but what, what are some of the other ways that private equity you've seen them add value?
1: Well, I wasn't an expert when I came into the industry, so anything I've learned over the last twenty years, to a large degree, I owe the private equity industry in general for working with me and teaching me, um, you know, these concepts. So, you know what 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 I tell people is, you know, when, when you when you go back to the early days of private equity, you know, the early firms didn't have to be great at running companies. They just had to be great at trying to pick undervalued industries and, and then provide some financial support for growth and they could get outsized returns. But with record multiples being paid, record amounts of capital out looking for companies has changed the game in private equity you know, over the last decade or, or two at the longest. You know, now it's not sufficient to just be a provider of capital. When you're paying too much for an asset and you need to give an outsized return to your limited partners in order to get their money for the next fund that you're going to raise, you know, two, three years from now, um, you, you have to really now help that leadership team achieve those outside growth rates, you know, outsized growth rates and help them make those pivots and, you know, when you're talking about bending the curve. And so what I'm seeing is very sophisticated strategies that are being laid out, you know, world-class, you know, you know, world-class consulting firms being brought in um, to help, you know, and you know, then you know, it, most private equity firms have, you know, a bunch of old Gomers around who are are kind of industry advisors. You sprinkle in the McKenzie's and the Baines and you know all the big consulting groups, and you know, that they can bring a lot of operational expertise and If you think about the different size type companies, you know, there's a lot of activity in the lower middle market and in the middle market, you know, size business area. So you may have a small business owner who's successful, who built an empire over 20 years, and they're in the lower middle market, you know, that they have, you know, that they have $30 million, you know, $40 million of revenue, and they've got $10 million of, of EBITDA. And, you know, left to their own devices, they've kind of maxed out their potential. And, and one of the things I, I tell entrepreneurs all the time to drive home the point, I think about classical music, you know, the typical entrepreneur is the first chair player of every section of the orchestra, you know, they have to be the expert in everything. And in order to get their business to go from startup to successful, but in order to go from kind of 30 million to 100 million, they need to learn how to become a conductor and to trust others to be the first chair player in the orchestra. And what private equity brings to the table to help with that transition is kind of the best business minds on the planet. You know, when when you're a private equity firm and you have billions of dollars in assets under management, you have collective access to resources that that fifty million dollar, or thirty million, or ten million dollar company just never is going to have. You know, when I'm on a phone call, you know, every couple of weeks, and it's with former governors. And it's, you know, senior government officials talking about government policy, you know, that's access that I, I couldn't get as a small company, you know, during COVID, world class medical minds talking about what was going on, and, you know, how we as a small company should adapt, you know, our, our policies, our procedures, our workforce habits, and what could we expect happening, you know, as, as time was going on, you know, when, when you're talking about, you know, trying to amplify Organic growth or sales—I mean, bringing in just just world-class companies that consult to the Fortune 500 world—and you turn loose that kind of talent inside a small, middle-market company—and what you get is, you know, a, a leadership team that, with the proper coaching, learns how to bend a curve and learns how to take what they had and take it to an entirely different level. And and so, I, I, I personally have. Have enjoyed that. I know, as a as a younger guy, as a CEO, you know, I always thought of consultants as, uh, you know, if you can't if you can't do, then you teach or you consult, and you know, you're the arrogant guy who knows everything. As I got older, it's please, you know, come on in, help me, help my leadership team rethink strategy, rethink where we're at, help us break the mold, bend the curve, and, uh, and improve process and put things back together differently based on all the best practice research and work that they've done in other companies. Um, and, and it really is helpful. And, and not only that, but it's also friendly because it's a below-the-line expense, one-time expense. So um, I have I've really loved that aspect. As I've gotten older and matured, just the, the, the value-added resources private equity can bring to a small company are uh, are definitely an outsized advantage if used properly, and if again the leadership team understands what the game is and knows what, what what the the rules are, you know, then then they can adapt and thrive. And people who 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 don't do get replaced, and then their experience is private equity sucks. It's bad. You know, I did it once; it was horrible. Maybe they weren't prepared, right? Well, I think we've probably already
0: covered this last misconception because I think you talked a lot about what, you know, how they work together with senior management and the rest of it. But I I think sort of the last common misconception that, you know, that I frequently see is that being bought by private equity means that you lose all control and that uh, the current management team is going to lose all control.
1: Technically, that's an accurate statement because a private equity buyout fund must by 51% of the company. They need to have a controlling stake um, you, know, in, you know, there are some who will take minority stakes, but the vast majority of buyout funds are just that, they're buyout funds. They have to, in order to put the capital to work that they're gonna deploy, which is not their money, it's limited partner's money that's contributed, they need to have control. Uh, If things do go south, they have to be able to make change in order to protect the fiduciary, you know, to to perform their their fiduciary responsibilities to their limited partners. Um, So yes, it can mean you do lose all control. However, I will remind you that private equity doesn't come with a management team. They're financial backers. They come with a checkbook. They buy companies in industries that they think are attractive, and they really invest in leadership teams. And want to back those leadership teams and help them grow. And if they cannot make the leap, then they will get replaced. But if they if they do understand and they work together with that private equity firm or sponsor, then uh, you know most of these strategic decisions are are going to be made at the company level by the CEO. And you know, really, it's it's done in concert. You know, so you know when I'm, I talk about buy and build most of the time i wouldn't go to my private equity sponsors and ask permission to buy i'd go to them with what i call a white paper you know or just here's my diagnostic deck Here's a company that we've located that we like. Here's why we like it. Here's all all we've learned about it, and here's what happens when you put it with us. And one plus one equals three. And I'm asking for a simple vote, you know, to approve the acquisition. I need board level approval. And on a bigger deal where I know I'm going to need more financing or it's transformative, it's not up the middle of the fairway. It's like uh, it's an eagle you know, on a par five, you know, and I'm going to need a lot of money and it's big and transformative. Well, then I know that as a, as a CEO, I need to have my sponsor in early working with me on diligence and, and getting educated on the opportunity along the way. I can't just spring a white paper or diagnostic deck at the end and say, approve this. And oh, by the way, it's a hundred million dollar acquisition, you know, on my $500 million company, you know, and, uh, and expect that it's going to get approved, you know, there's gonna be a million questions. So I think private equity leadership teams have to learn how to work with private equity within the confines of private equity, kind of learn about governance and how it works. And, And again, that's why, you know, why I was trying to write these books is because when things go bad, it's typically because there's a lack of understanding, you know, or a lack of communication and, uh, and that leads to a, an ultimate breakdown. So if you know what you're getting into, you understand how to pick a good partner and you understand what their needs are and their expectations are, it can be a wonderful partnership. And you know, generally speaking, you know, I, I'll take Wash. You know, I was there for 13 years and four months and three sets of shareholders. I would tell you the opposite. The hardest damn thing for a private equity CEO to do is get out. You know, not 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 to stay in. If you're doing your job, you're going to stay in. Problem is, when you're selling from one firm to another, it's like they want a huge rollover. And you know, Adam, you got to stay and and take us to the next level. And it's like, boy, sometimes it's hard to get out. You know, rather than hard to stay in. So I I would tell you, my experience has been there's a lot of value to be brought to the table. When experiences are bad, it's generally because there's a lack of communication or an understanding as a leadership team of what the expectations truly are. So maybe they weren't communicated well during a sale process. Um, m- maybe there was uh, just a-, a total misunderstanding um, you know, that was built along the way. But But generally, if there's good communication, if you understand how the game's played, understand what the rules are, you can excel, you can win, and you can have a good experience doing it.
0: Adam, thank you so much for your time today. I mean, there's a million more things I could talk about in your book. I'd love, I could talk about the process. I could talk about the key players, you know, the investment bankers and the, and the private equity uh, folks, but uh, I, I don't wanna take the rest of your day because I know how busy you are. Um, but you know, if, if I ever get a chance to have you back, uh, I'd love to maybe talk about some of those other topics because I think they're incredibly interesting too. But um, bef- before you do go, can you give me a little bit, uh, what, what's next for you? So I know you've been CEO of CoolSys, uh, CEO and president of CoolSys. You've now written two best best-selling books. Um, so, so what are you doing? What's going on with your career now at this point?
1: You know, over the last five years or so, well, so I, I started teaching about 10, 10, 15 years ago, somewhere back there really love it. You know, can't earn a living doing it. But by God, I I enjoy doing it. Working with the world's, you know, next generation of business leaders has been very rewarding to to, to me personally. And so, you know, I, 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 frankly, after 21 years, I was starting to get bored running a company, I really believe that I can impact multiple companies at a time, by working with CEOs, not being just a passive board member who shows up once a quarter and mails it in, but by actually digging in, really helping a, a CEO understand and plan and execute—you um, know, call it a CEO whisperer kind of kind of position—but an active role. And so, my, my my goal and objective now is to find four or five companies where I can dig in, really be an asset to the CEO, not a threat, and uh, and help them achieve success and get outsized returns and I I believe that I can parallel process everything that I've learned over the last 20 years and and put it to work not one at a time but four or five at a time and and I personally can make co-investments in each of these companies that I'm helping people with and uh, it's a new challenge call it so after 21 years of a single contributor Mm -hmm. CEO running a company I want to be a guy who helps four or five people at a time, you know, simultaneously and, and helps add value, you know, at a, at a larger scale. And so I think, I think for me, you know, continuing to teach, um, you know, not now working on, you know, some uh, a, a course for executive MBA type level um, uh, candidates based on my two books, you know, about private equity, about exits, about venture capital, about entrepreneurship and, uh, and start actually teaching that. So teaching uh, more, more writing, more books, but then now also working to impact multiple companies at a time through, through active board roles. That's what's next for me.
0: Amazing. And so if people want to find out more about you, easy to find your books on Amazon as their best sellers. And, and again, I couldn't recommend them highly enough. Uh, they can find you on LinkedIn. Anywhere else they should look for you?
1: Uh, I have a personal website. It's Adam E coffee, coffe com. You can uh, find me there as well. And uh, hey, I love hearing from people. I really really do. People read out, reach out to me on LinkedIn every day. And uh, it's fun engaging with the world. Just don't try to sell me something. I'm not running a company anymore. And so you know, Mama's got the checkbook, and you know, Daddy doesn't have it anymore. So it, it's uh, you know, what can I tell you? Um, I love hearing from from readers and and people who've got questions. The Exit Strategy Playbook came as a direct result of a bunch of questions I was getting from people who read the first book, the Private Equity Playbook, and so I answered their questions by writing Book Two, and uh, I'm sure that uh, actually I'm already working on Book Three. So. You know it's gonna be fun you know I'd love hearing from people around the globe and uh, spend as much time as, as I can you know answering people's questions and uh, and appreciate their interest in in my work so it's been fun.
0: Thanks Adam thanks so much for your time talk
1: soon thanks Ian thank you to your listeners
0: thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Dig In. If you want more information about dig insights or upside please check us out on LinkedIn or at our websites. At diginsights.com or upside.com. If you have any ideas for future episodes or would like to be a guest, please feel free to direct message me through the LinkedIn app.